Appendix The Christian Origins of American Civil Government Our nation began as a Christian nation. Our earliest forefathers believed the Bible when it said, By me kings reign and rulers decree justice, Proverbs 8.15. But it seems that the general public is being brainwashed to believe that our nation was founded on some neutral morality base. Secularism, we are told, has always ruled the day. Religion in general, and Christianity in particular, had little to do with the founding of these United States. Education, law, and politics were purposely separated from any religious affiliation. So the critics of an early education America want us to believe. The present educational establishment, for example, wants to bury the past so our children have no way of comparing our Christian history with the secularist vision of the future. A recent study of textbooks bears this out. Paul E. Witz, professor of psychology at New York University, spent months of careful analysis of 60 textbooks used in elementary schools across the country. The study was sponsored by the Department of Education. The texts were examined in terms of their references to religion, either directly or indirectly. The most striking thing, Witz determined, is the total absence of any primary religious text about typical contemporary American religious life. In particular, there is not one text reference to characteristic Protestant religious life in these books. When religious life is depicted, the references are so diluted as to be meaningless. For example, in a Spanish-speaking neighborhood, churches have places for dances and sports events. Religion is trivialized. In another textbook, a Puritan church is not described as a center of religious life, but rather as a center for a summer piano festival. For the secularist, religion is evolutionary. There was a time when people were religious, but now that we've come of age, we no longer need religion. Religion, in effect, is a projection of man's primitive past. Modern man can do without the superstitions of religious belief. What used to be places of worship are now nothing more than entertainment centers. The Enlightenment lives. The depiction of religious life in America doesn't seem much different from that of religious life in the Soviet Union. Some of the churches in the Soviet Union are used as museums. For the most part, only the elderly are religious and go to church. The children are indoctrinated to believe that the state is the greatest good. The report by Dr. Witz is a frightening reality. George Orwell's Ministry of Truth, where the past is discarded down the memory hole, is no longer fiction. Orwell understood the importance of the past. He wrote the following in his prophetic novel, 1984. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Our job is to make Christianity the standard around the world. No discussion ought to take place unless the biblical perspective is first discovered. This will mean gaining a better knowledge of the Bible and the development of skills to use the Bible. Further, it means gaining a knowledge of our rich Christian past, a past that is being cleverly and boldly written out of our history books. The present educational establishment wants to bury the past so our children have no way of comparing the past with the secularist vision of history and their aspirations for the future. This tactic eliminates discussion and conflict. It's time that our nation is reintroduced to the past. As Christians, we must not remain silent as nearly every vestige of Christianity is being removed from public life, from the gospel being denied in public government, schools to the removal of signs that the Salvation Army put on buses in Fresno, California that read, God bless you. A Christian Commonwealth. 
Both religious and political persecution motivated our forefathers to leave the shores of England and to start a Christian commonwealth in the New World. The purpose of the New England colonies was, with respect to church and state, twofold. First, to establish the true and free church, free of the control of the state, free to be a co-worker in terms of the kingdom of God, to establish God's Zion on earth. Second, to establish godly magistrates, i.e. a Christian state, magistrates as ordained by God. The separation of Christianity from the working of the state was never in the minds of these early settlers. The following evidence will show that Christianity was the motivating force behind this nation's advance. The history of this nation began not in 1776, but more than a century earlier. Since ideas have consequences, we should expect to see the beliefs of previous generations influencing subsequent generations. It's true that even today, the influence of our Christian forefathers is making an impact, albeit a small one. William Bradford, 1589 question mark through 1657, in his History of Plymouth Plantation wrote, a great hope and inward zeal they had of laying some good foundation, or at least to make some way thereunto, for the propagating and advancing of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world, yea, though they should be put even as stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work. The Mayflower Compact, drafted prior to the pilgrims' arrival uh, off Cape Cod, on November 11, 1620, was the first Republican document of the New World, a forerunner to the United States Constitution. It reads in part, In the name of God, amen, we whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God, having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of other ends aforesaid. The first charter of Virginia emphasizes the Christian character of the infant nation. We greatly commending and graciously accepting of their desires for the furtherance of so noble a work which may, by the providence of Almighty God, hereafter tend to the glory of His divine majesty in propagating of the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. The Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, drafted in January 14, 1639, at Hartford, was the first written constitution that created a civil government. It reads in part, Forasmuch as it has pleased Almighty God by the wise disposition of his divine providence so to order and dispose these lands, and well knowing where a people are gathered together, the word of God requires that to maintain the peace and union of such a people there should be an orderly and decent government established according to God, to order and dispose of the affairs of all the people at all seasons as occasions shall require. Do therefore associate and 
conjoin ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth, and do for ourselves and our successors, and such as shall be adjoined to us at any time hereafter, enter into combination and confederation together to maintain and preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which we now profess, as also the discipline of the churches, which according to the truth of the said gospel is now practiced among us. The New England Confederation, put into effect on May 19, 1643, established a union of like-minded civil bodies. Whereas we all came into these parts of America with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel and purity with peace, and whereas our settling by a wise providence of God, we are further dispersed upon the sea coasts and rivers than was a first intended. These early governmental documents have several things in common. First, they are not revolutionary documents, calling on men to overthrow the existing order through armed conflict. Second, God is acknowledged as the king and sovereign, and earthly kings must bow in submission to his revealed will. Third, the adherents of these documents came to the new world to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not some utopian state-sponsored political order. Fourth, the Bible was accepted as the standard for an orderly and decent government, as well as for the discipline of churches. Fifth, the gospel preceded the advance of civilization. Sixth, the people covenanted with God before they combined and confederated together. Seventh, their future depended upon faithfulness to God's commands. Eighth, liberty was the fruit of a Christian world order. What about the Constitution? On adoption of the U.S. Constitution in 1789, there was fear that the new national government would either interfere with the various states that had established religions, nine of the 13 colonies, or institute a national church, making each state conform to the decree of Congress. Because of these fears, many states petitioned the first Congress to include a constitutional amendment prohibiting the national government from funding a single Christian denomination and favoring it with legal action. This is why, historically, the real object of the First Amendment was not to countenance, much less advance, Mohammedism, Islam, or Judaism, or infidelity by prostrating Christianity, but to exclude all rivalry among Christian sects, denominations, and to prevent any national ecclesiastical establishment which would give to an hierarchy the exclusive patronage of the national government. Such was the opinion of Chief Justice Joseph Story in the mid-19th century. When the First Amendment was drafted, nine of the 13 states had established churches. The First Amendment was a guarantee to the states that the states would be able to continue whatever church-state relationship existed in 1791, the year the Bill of Rights was ratified and made part of the Constitution. Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia all shared Anglicanism as the established religion. Congregationalism was the established religion in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Connecticut. New York, while not having an established church, allowed for the establishment of Protestant religions. Only in Rhode Island and Virginia were all religious sects disestablished, but the Christian religion was the foundation of all the states. Their social, civil, and political institutions were based on the Bible. Not even Rhode Island and Virginia renounced Christianity, and both states continued to respect and acknowledge the Christian religion in their systems of law. 
Congressman James Madison, the chief author of the First Amendment, informed his congressional colleagues that he was responding to the desires of the various state conventions to prohibit establishment of a national religion where one religious sect might obtain a preeminence over others. As legal scholars point out, the critical word in the First Amendment's religion clause is respecting. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment. Respecting is synonymous with concerning, regarding, and about. Professor Robert Cord writes that the provision does not prohibit an establishment of religion. Rather, it prohibits Congress from making laws about, concerning, or regarding an establishment of religion, i.e. the establishment of one denomination, sect, over all others. National Prayers after passage of the First Amendment, the First Congress petitioned the President to proclaim a National Day of Prayer and Thanksgiving. The issue was raised by Rep. Tucker that prayer is a religious matter and, as such, is proscribed to us. If a day of Thanksgiving must take place, let it be done by the authority of several states. The prayer resolution passed in spite of the objections of Rep. Tucker and others. On September 24, 1789, the same day that it approved the First Amendment, Congress called on President Washington to proclaim a national day of prayer and thanksgiving. The First Congress resolved that a joint committee of both houses be directed to wait upon the President of the United States to request that he would recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a constitution of government for their safety and happiness. The First Congress also established the Congressional Chaplain System, by which official daily prayers to God are still offered. In the entire debate on the First Amendment, not one word was said by any congressman about a wall of separation between church and state. That would outlaw such a practice. Government Buildings and Inscriptions If men refuse to glorify God, he is able from stones to rise up children to praise him, Matthew 3.9. The courts, through the legal maneuverings of the ACLU, are working to remove every vestige of Christianity from our land. Our Christian heritage is still etched in stone, in coins, on walls, on canvas, and in glass. First, the ten commandments hang over the head of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Second, in the House and Senate, chambers appear the words, In God we trust. Third, in the rotunda is the figure of the crucified Christ. Fourth, on the walls of the Capitol Dome, these words appear, The New Testament according to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Fifth, on the great seal of the United States is inscribed the phrase, Anuit coeptis. God has smiled on our undertaking. Sixth, under the seal is the phrase from Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, This Nation Under God. Seventh, President Eliot of Harvard chose Micah 6.8 for the walls of the nation's library. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what God doth require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Eighth, the lawmaker's library quotes the psalmist acknowledgment of the beauty and order of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Psalm 19.1. Ninth, engraved on the metal cap on the top of the Washington Monument are the words, Praise be to God. Lining the walls of the stairwell are numerous Bible verses. Search the scriptures. Holiness to the Lord. 
and train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. Tenth, the crier who opens each session of the Supreme Court closes with the words, God save the United States and the Honorable Court. Eleventh, at the opposite end of the Lincoln Memorial, words and phrases to Lincoln's second inaugural address allude to God, the Bible, providence, the Almighty, and divine attributes. Twelfth, the plaque in the Dirksen office building has the words, In God we trust, in bronze relief. Thirteenth, in the Capitol building, a room was set aside by the 83rd Congress to be used exclusively for the private prayer and meditation of members of Congress. In this specially designated room, there is a stained glass window showing George Washington kneeling in prayer. Behind Washington, a prayer is etched, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust, Psalm 16.1. The two lower corners of the window each show the Holy Scriptures in an open book and a candle, signifying the light from God's law. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, Psalm 119.105. The question then arises, if so much American political history is Christian, where did we get the idea of the separation of church and state? The answer is, from infidel politicians and minority churches that did not want to be taxed for the benefit of other churches, so they gave up the idea of ruling in the civil sphere. This development is illustrated nicely by the story of Thomas Jefferson and the Baptists. Jefferson's Humanist Legacy Ask almost any American if he believes in the separation of church and state, and he will tell you he does. Ask him why, and he may say that it's in the Constitution. It isn't in the Constitution. It never was. It was in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to a group of Baptists. Jefferson responded on January 1, 1802 to a group of Danbury, Connecticut Baptists who called him an infidel. There is no question that those Baptists had him dead to rights. He was indeed an infidel. He did not believe in the divinity of Christ, nor did he believe in the Bible as the word of God. He even put together a special version of the Bible, one without any miracles in it, but he did believe in one thing, getting re-elected. He knew that he was dead politically if Christians ever found out what his true beliefs were, for Christians were the overwhelming majority politically. So he covered his tracks. He hid behind a smokescreen of false concern over religious integrity and a free conscience. This was a smart tactic. Baptists were not part of any state religious establishment. They resented the fact that they had to pay taxes that went to support state churches, a reasonable resentment in retrospect, but not a commonly shared opinion in 1802 anywhere on earth. So he appealed to their sense of injustice. He understood their fears. He wrote, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes an account to none other for faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declare that their legislator should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. That wall of separation language appealed to what was then a small religious sect that was discriminated against, the Baptists. Fifty years later, they had become the dominant Protestant group numerically as they remain today. Jefferson, the theological infidel, wanted nothing more than to get Christians out of his hair politically. So in effect, he offered them a political deal. You get out of my hair politically, and I will get out of your hair ecclesiastically. 
This deal was repeated again and again in U.S. history. It rested on a myth, the myth of neutrality. It rested on another myth, the myth of natural law. It rested on the greatest political myth in modern history, the separation of God and state. The infidels spoke of the separation of church and state. But what they were after was the separation of God and state, the separation of God's law and state, and, if they could achieve it, the separation of Christians and state. They wanted the Christians to disenfranchise themselves voluntarily, and to achieve this, they invented a new slogan, the separation of church and state. It worked, too, especially after 1925 in the media reaction to the famous Scopes monkey trial over the teaching of evolution in government-funded high schools until about 1975, the candidacy of Jimmy Carter. Jefferson had no hand in the drafting of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. He was in France at the time, since when do phrases and letters of presidents substitute for constitutional language? Jefferson backs off in public. When he gave his second inaugural address in 1805, Jefferson modified his private 1802 position to conform publicly to the Constitution. He did not want to kill his political machine unnecessarily. He publicly admitted that the states did possess lawful jurisdiction over many religious matters. In matters of religion, I have considered that its free exercise is placed by the Constitution independent of the powers of the general, federal, or national government. I have therefore undertaken on no occasion to prescribe the religious exercises suited to it, but have left them, as the Constitution found them, under the direction and discipline of the church or state authorities acknowledged by the several religious societies. In a letter to Samuel Miller, Thomas Jefferson further clarified his position. I consider the government of the United States as interdicted, prohibited, by the Constitution from intermeddling with religious institutions, their doctrines, discipline, or exercises. This results not only from the provision that no law shall be made respecting an establishment or free exercise of religion, but from that also which reserves to the states the powers not delegated to the general government. It must rest with the states as far as it can be in any human authority. Which God, which spokesman? The legal language of church-state relations is not found in our Constitution, but it is found in the Soviet Constitution. In order to ensure to citizens freedom of conscience, the church in the USSR is separated from the state and the school from the church. Freedom of religious worship and freedom of anti-religious propaganda is recognized for all citizens. But in the Soviet Union, there is nothing about the state. Thus, the separation of church and state means the separation of church and everything. This has been the goal of statist and humanist from the beginning. And they struck a deal with fearful Christians who conceded in principle their goal, the retreat of Christianity from every area of public responsibility and authority. What has happened since Jefferson's day is the steady intrusion of the state into every area of life. This is what false gods do, after all, intrude. At the same time, the humanist infidels steadily preach the separation of church and state, meaning biblical morality and state. Thus, as the state was getting bigger, it was also getting less and less restrained by biblical law and Christian fears about unwarranted political power. The myth of separation of Christianity and state led inevitably to the secularization of every area of life and the centralization of power in the national government. There can be no freedom without Christ. Take Christ and the Bible out of any institution of government and you thereby lose freedom. 
the confusion of Christians over the question of lawful jurisdiction, who speaks for God in any given area, has led steadily to the monopoly of jurisdiction by the state, which speaks only for itself, the new God of the ages. Judicial Schizophrenia at the time of the drafting of the Constitution, the prevailing worldview, although waning in its effect on the nation, was biblical Christianity. Justice was based on the laws of nature and of nature's God. The law was revealed to man in the Bible. Our founders believed also in the law of nature or natural rights, which were most clearly revealed to man in Scripture. Their view of the law of nature was influenced heavily by the English jurist William Blackstone. His commentaries on the laws of England, published in the decade before the American Revolution, was read by most lawyers in the colonies. Perhaps more than anyone else, Blackstone established the terms of debate for the revolution. Amazingly, his books are seldom read today, even by historians who specialize in the American Revolution. In his commentaries, Blackstone had argued that the fall of man has made his mind untrustworthy, so it is necessary to use the Bible to rightly understand the universal laws that God has established. In time, however, the law of nature degenerated into natural law, a law devoid of biblical content. In 1892, the United States Supreme Court determined in the case The Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States that America was a Christian nation from its earliest days. The court opinion delivered by Justice Josiah Brewer was an exhaustive study of the historical and legal evidence for America's Christian heritage. After examining hundreds of court cases, state constitutions, and other historical documents, the court came to the following conclusion. Our laws and institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense, and to this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian. This is a religious people. This is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there is a single voice making this affirmation. We find everywhere a clear recognition of the same truth. These and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. Incorporation In the Everson case of 1948, the court held that the First Amendment's Establishment Clause had been incorporated into and made part of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, adopted in 1868, and was thus a restriction on the states as well as Congress. Yet the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment makes no reference to religion, but simply provides that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Incorporation had been rejected by the court for nearly three-quarters of a century after the 14th Amendment. The court in 1948 gave no explanation for its judicial move of incorporation. Since the Everson decision of 1948, eminent legal scholars have rejected incorporation. The Blaine Amendment was introduced in Congress seven years after adoption of the 14th Amendment. It substituted the word state for Congress. No state shall make any law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The Blaine Amendment was considered 20 times by Congress between 1876 and 1929, but always failed. 
Even Blaine himself never suggested that the First Amendment was incorporated into the 14th. If the 14th Amendment did incorporate the First Amendment as the Supreme Court now says, why did its authors think the Blaine Amendment was necessary to restrict the power of the states as to religion? What the Supreme Court says isn't necessarily law. The U.S. Constitution recognized this from the beginning, although for the past century few legal scholars and virtually no politicians have acknowledged what the founders wrote into the Constitution. If Congress is convinced that the court is usurping jurisdiction that belongs to Congress, they can remove appellate jurisdiction from the Supreme Court. Article 3, Section 2, Clause 2. This was done in a case in 1869. Ex parte McArdle. It is interesting that law professors in prestigious law schools teach their students that what the Supreme Court says is not the law, that it is not final, and they encourage their students to try to get cases overturned that appear to be settled by Supreme Court precedent. But in public, they seldom admit this. Yes, what the court says is the law of the land, they tell television interviewers. Then they return to their classrooms and tell their students that the Supreme Court has only decided one case at one point in time, but it has not decided the law of the land. Summary Jefferson's legacy had its origins in the Enlightenment, where reason was crowned as God, natural law substituted for biblical law, and neutrality became the new legal fiction. The Christian community was sucked into the vortex of this emerging mythical worldview, but institutions built on myths are collapsing. The worldviews based on reason over revelation, natural law, or biblical law, and neutrality over the religious presuppositions of Thomas Jefferson in politics, Horace Mann and John Dewey in education, and Oliver Wendell Holmes in law, are disintegrating. So the goal is to steadily recover our religious historical roots, but without such medieval mistakes as state-financed churches and state-financed schools. We need to get back to the tradition that Jefferson fought, but without restoring what the Baptist fought. The First Amendment was added to the Constitution to protect the church from a national establishment of religion. There is an abundant amount of evidence supporting the claim that America's early history was based on biblical principles. The phrase, the separation of church and state, comes from a letter written by Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson had nothing to do with the drafting of the First Amendment. Recent courts and humanist politicians have illegitimately substituted Jefferson's anti-constitutional phrase in place of the First Amendment. The communists followed their leads. The Soviet Constitution maintains that the church is separated from the state, what the Constitution was clearly designated to prevent, the intrusion by Congress into state and local ecclesiastical affairs. Recent interpreters of the Constitution have mandated in the name of the Constitution. Christians who have never learned the Christian history of the United States have ignorantly and complacently gone along with this deliberate rewriting of American judicial history. They still think the words the separation of church and state are in the Constitution. They are in the Soviet Constitution. The humanists in the United States are no more neutral religiously than the humanists in the Soviet Union. In both cases, the national state is assumed to have divine rights, immunity from judicial appeal. Religiously neutral natural law theory cannot protect Christians in the United States from the inevitable loss of liberty that every non-Christian system of government inevitably produces. There is only one appeal that can assure men of liberty, an appeal to God and his Bible.